Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. In today's episode, we're covering Thomas Sankara, a politician with radical revolutionary views and policies for Burkina Faso in the mid-1980s. Sankara remains an inspiration to young Africans and those committed to a pan-Africanist future. So just a geography check, Burkina Faso is in West Africa and is a landlocked country bordering six others, Mali, Niger, Benin, Togo, Ghana and Ivory Coast. So Sankara was just 33 years old when he came to lead a country called Upper Volta after a coup in 1983. In August of 1984, he changed the name of Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, which means land of the upright people. And this like changing name kind of allows the country to reclaim their identity back again. Yeah, and a lot of them did that. Like after they gained independence from one of their colonisers, they were like, yeah. do you know what? New... <laughs> New Year, new me kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, the, you did have the very uninspiring Southwest Africa, who uh, was actually now today known as Namibia. But imagine, imagine just like, <laughs> where are you from? Southwest, Southwest Africa. Africa. <laughs> Even South Africa sounds a bit. Yeah, it just yeah. It's a bit plain, isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. That's not its real name, by the no. way. Well, we will find out what it is. Yeah, we will. We will when we'll we get to our next, well, eventual, <laughs> eventual episode. episode. Um, and also, the other thing, around the Upper Volta... Oh, yeah. There's also... So we're trying to figure out why it was called Upper Volta, but yeah. it was to do with the river. The River Volta. The River Volta. And then people would turn around and be like, where's the Lower Volta? There is no Lower Volta. There it, is just an Upper Volta. It's a social construct. <laughs> it's all a social construct. <laughs> Everything is a social construct. Um, so before Sankara came into power, Burkina Faso was stricken by poverty. Its location as a landlocked country bordered by desert in the north, limited its opportunities. It has been led by incompetent and corrupt leaders since its independence from France. Essentially, there have been no development since 1960, which is when they received independence. So it's a bit like a political mic drop. Honestly. Just like, done. peace out, eight out, see ya. (laughs) You're free now. Get on with it, you know, freedom, this is what you guys wanted. Um, and this is similar to what we discussed on episode one. Literally, yeah. just like, okay, you guys have your freedom now. We're just stepping we'll, away. Yeah. Away. Or we'll put people who aren't really the best to be in power in power so that it will further weaken your country and kind of set you up for failure, which is exactly what happened with Nigeria. We're leaving, but we're never really gone. It's like one of those, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Honestly. They will either do that or they'll have like puppets just to maintain the control of the colony so that, that country always is kind of bound by this you know, unwritten rules that it still has to be loyal to its original colony. So what were Sankara's inspirations and ideologies? So his ideas around foreign policy centred on anti-imperialism, averting foreign aid and pushing for debt reduction. He openly challenged French power in West Africa and emphasised economic self-reliance. Originally, Burkina Faso didn't attract much attention outside of West Africa until Sankara overthrew the country's corrupt and nondescript military leadership. Arguably, the military before Sankara acted as stand-ins for French interests in the region. This is what set Sankara apart as he was not interested in fulfilling the interests of French colonial powers. Sankara also averted the IMF, which is also known as the International Monetary Fund, and World Bank's power and influence. In his words, he who feeds you controls you. In this way, he was 
really uh, creative and unconventional. And as he said, he charted a third way by not giving in to the interests of the Soviet Union or the West and the US. He challenged military leaders and French influence in West Africa, calling them criminals in power. So he's pretty brave. Yeah, this guy was just not afraid. You know, I he who feeds you controls you. I absolutely love that line because it just sums it up, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and even he who feeds you when they didn't even need to be there. But, you know. Yeah, they're still there anyway. <laughs> you, didn't, they didn't, you didn't ask for them, but they wanted to feed you anyway. Or but they didn't want to clothe you. But they didn't want to clothe you. Um, yeah, still definitely controls you. So, yeah, he was a pretty gutsy guy. Mm-hmm. And especially if he wants to pick a fight with France who essentially like the Goliath of colonialism. It's, it's, you know, it's a bold move to take. And in episode one, we saw what happened in Nigeria's case when similarly aged Ajukuru challenged Western powers yeah. un- unsuccessfully, sadly. There were essentially two major superpowers, the West and the Soviet Union. So you had to pick a side. And yeah. the ex-colonies' uh, survival depended on which ideology and which country you decided to align to. This guy was just out here like, do you know what, this is what I stand for and I'm going to live by that and speak my truth. Let's talk through how Sankara enforced his revolution in Burkina Faso through a series of policy changes. So from a civil perspective, he discouraged luxuries that came with government office. His possessions were limited to a car, four bikes, three guitars, a fridge and a broken freezer. So a broken freezer. <laughs> we're unclear whether he specifically requested a broken freezer. I don't know if that was his like, okay, I've got four bikes that are working. I need something broken. And you know what? Freezer. Broken freezer I is what is required. So relatable <laughs> that I cannot freeze my food. Yeah. That's you know, a man of the people. This is very similar to the independent group. Who? And- <laughs> Who dis? <laughs> if anyone remembers the independent group who are now defunct, going for a cheeky Nando's. Yeah. When, Don't believe any of them had a Nando's card, but... When the, the waiter was like, have you ever had a Nando's before? Chikamuna was like, no, I haven't actually. <laughs> Here we are. That's the modern day equivalent of a broken freezer. Yeah. <laughs> so he also took on a small salary of, a hun- of around $450 per month which, you know, give and take inflation and doing all the maths and all those numbers things that you're meant to do to work out how much it equivalates to now, we don't know, so don't ask about it. No, we don't. But we estimate minimum wage. Yeah, minimum wage. You know, it's clearly not a six-figure salary, four, five, zero, three numbers. Uh, So it's definitely less than Boris Johnson. Yeah, I don't think Boris Johnson has (laughs) ever collected a minimum wage salary in his life. It's the complete opposite of what some of his colleagues in other countries were doing. They were out there like, you know, money out, I'm having all of this, living that (laughs) classic, like, early 2000s R&B music video life. (laughs) Love a despot lifestyle. It's so great. (laughs) And... He also sold off the government fleet of Mercedes cars and enforced the Renault 5, which was the cheapest car in Burkina Faso, as the official service car for ministers. So essentially, that's like Pretty Patel being driven in a Ford Fiesta. I want to see that. I want to see I that. I want to see that, and then I want someone to make it into a meme. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is the level. That needs to happen. <laughs> that is how news is shared now. Yeah. <laughs> And the use of government chauffeurs and first-class airline tickets was also forbidden. Sankara refused to have his picture in public buildings and forced well-off civil servants to pay one month's salary for public projects. Their salaries were also reduced. He even refused air conditioning on the grounds that this luxury was not available to most of his fellow countrymen and women. 
Yeah, he's really sweating for the cause. Honestly, like next level. He's a man of the people. No air con. (laughs) It's not that deep. Do you know what I mean? Like you want your president at least to be slightly aspirational. You know, you want to be that kid who's like, oh, wish I was, like, love to be him, you know, doing this. But what? He's there sweating because, you know, know, I want you to be relatable. It's asking for too much, maybe. Asking for too much. Do you know what I mean? West Africa without air conditioning, that's... Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you... (laughs) But, hey, he's one of us. He he understands. He understands the struggle. He understands the struggle. He can't even cool himself off in that broken freezer. Maybe he could try a fridge. (laughs) (laughs) Bless him, bless him. <laughs> Education was also important to Sankara and he ensured the public was educated through slogans. Young people were part of a pioneer movement where they received ideological and political training to ensure they did not adhere to egocentricity. So essentially Sankara is, you know, the sort of black Jesus-Jeremy Corbyn hybrid that, you know, Honestly. we've never seen before. <laughs> the Jesus the Americans didn't tell you about. Honestly, like, he is so... It's incredible that he came, that he just put this together. He was like, okay, I want to be, I don't need all these lavish things. Let me like I'm live really just for like, the people. Yeah, definitely. And people, so, so many like high powers, government powers end up saying like, you know, for the people and one of this. And they've never really... They're not actually about it. You know, it. they've never sweated for the cause, so... <laughs> they never he, had a broken freezer, Yeah, mind. do you know what I mean? And he's like, I've experienced this. <laughs> I've no idea how to fix it, but I know it's definitely broken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And we also figured out yeah. that Thomas and Cara can fit in the White Stripes song. Just like Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. So, wait, we've got to clap for this, right? Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. Oh, wait, you've got to do the tune cause I can re- so I can remember it. Oh, Thomas and Cara. Oh, Thomas and Cara. What a guy. <laughs> I think if your name fits within that song, you're automatically a legend. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Pretty Done. Much. Legend status. Approved. Completed. <laughs> Sankara was also an early advocate for women's rights in post-colonial Africa. So he banned FGM, also known as female circumcision. He also banned forced marriage and polygamy, which is when um, men marry multiple women. And in this way, he established new social relations between men and women. He was the first African head of state, post-colonial of course, to appoint women to high government positions. This action was inspired by his belief to upset the relations of authority between men and women, and was also seen in Sankara's decision to actively recruit women for the military. So women were seen in the same uniform as men, marching and undergoing the same training. Women were also encouraged to go to work, and contraception was promoted. And men were encouraged to go to the market and prepare meals for their family to experience conditions faced by women on Women's Day. It was there that they found out how much ingredients really cost, and how women managed to balance work along with cooking for the family. Sankara's reforms in this area have been described as elevating women to human being status. Just human, human being, being status. status. <laughs> like, he recognised that women are also human beings. This guy, honestly, for, you know, for that time, and especially for a continent that's always seen as quite behind mm. everybody else, this was happening. He was making these changes and he was recognising especially from a women's perspective, just yeah. our value and our worth and what we were contributing. Yeah. Um, so he was so far ahead of his time. And it's only really now that we're really seeing this whole, like, you know, women can break the glass ceiling. Yeah. You know, we're really wanting to push For equal women. Pay. Yeah, equal pay, equal mm. rights. Like, just that side of things. But actually, there's this guy who's been doing it way before. He was doing this in the 80s, you know? 
honestly, it's actually like crazy. He was just so yeah. progressive and yeah. It was an opportunity for other countries to learn from Burkina Faso as well. So it's a shame that, you know, that sort of attitude didn't really spread, as it were. Definitely. And also on Women's Day, what would you want them, the guy to know, like to do for you? Or to do during that day to learn from? Because I love the fact that he said like, you know, they're going to the cooking, market. going to the market, taking care of the kids. Just having to do that whole like... Yeah. Yeah. Actually thing. having a day in your shoes, you know? Yeah. Which I, yeah, I absolutely love. Like, honestly, fangirling over this guy. What a guy. So from a healthcare perspective, Sankara led a large vaccination campaign and successfully eradicated polio, measles and meningitis. 2.5 million people were vaccinated within one week. The World Health Organization congratulated Sankara for this feat. And you got people still out here not vaccinating their children. Honestly, and this guy's like, nah, all of this stuff, this, got, this, is, this has got to go. Mass sport was also encouraged once a week, with Sankara and Kampare, his second-in-command and best friend, really setting out the examples around this. In the documentary Thomas Sankara, The Upright Man, there are clips of Sankara playing handball with his comrades. This was in line with the healthy mind, healthy body mindset that Burkina Babes were to have. So Burkina Babes are the people of Burkina Faso. Yes, Burkina Babes. Sounds like sugar babes, but it does. it's actually I am trying to avoid every time I want to say sugar babes, it is not sugar babes. So in terms of development, uh, there were public housing programmes that took place in cities. The countryside wasn't left behind either as Sankara ensured that regions were connected by road and rail. The aptly named Battle of the Rail involved the whole population taking part in building the country's railways without foreign investment. So, you know, at the moment, um, you see a lot of... Um, So in terms of China getting involved with many African countries at the moment. And they say that they'll fund and they'll build railways for this, you know, for your country. But at what cost? cost, Um, Because in Ethiopia, there there was a story um, about how um, a population of Somalians who live in Ethiopia is currently suffering from an illness since a Chinese natural gas project was set up in the region. So... You know, when you don't have the foreign investment wanting something else, else in on top, yeah. Here, we're helping you, but also, what can you do for us? Doesn't it just feel like China has just discovered Africa yeah. and the continent? Oh, yeah, I think they've only just said yeah, like, a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sorry, this whole thing was done, like, years ago? Yeah, they've just sort of come back no. at, for some reason. For some reason. TBT. <laughs> so, essentially, the Burkina Bays um, built the railway with, with their bare hands. So, I mean... Can you imagine if that was to happen here? Imagine if, you know, it's like, don't go to work today, you're helping to build HS2. Let's see, I'll probably get it done quicker. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there by orange jumpsuit. Yeah, just ready to with go. With the rail tracks. HS2, here I come. Kind of feels like prison, but I will keep building the railroad. Honestly, like, with my own hands. Yeah, I mean, he is talking about how he who feeds you controls you. There's feeding yourself and then there's eating your own arm, honestly. Pretty much. Like... <laughs> How far could we go? How far can we? But this hey, is at some least... kind of 120 hours type situation. Just like, I'm stuck. no, we will do this ourselves. I do love the fact that he's like, I am committed to being self-sufficient as a country. We will not get any help from anyone else. But at the same time, Imagine. like, I am not building the train that's going to get me to work. <laughs> Might be cheaper fares, though, because there's no privatised companies. So. Oh, yeah, true. There is that. Okay, maybe oh, I probably would I, I can, Okay, I will build I my would, own. Yeah. yeah, HS2. Um, we're here. Oh, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> 
So from a food policy perspective, uh, Sankara converted the Armour's provision store to a state-owned supermarket open to everyone. This was Burkina Faso's first supermarket. Sankara also stated that the Burkina babes should consume what we can control, preventing the reliance on foreign imported foods. In 1986, Burkina Faso was producing 3,800 kilograms of wheat per hectare. As part of this policy, traditional landowners lost their powers whilst irrigation and fertilisation programmes took place. In less than four years, Burkina Faso gained self-sufficiency. So it's interesting because this is happening in like the mid-80s where it's a complete contrast to what people thought the image of Africa was at the time. So mm-hmm. this is where you had stuff like Band-Aid and Libaid and all that nonsense. We are feeding the world. <laughs> feeding the world and letting them know that it's Christmas when they all have oh, calendars not, like the rest of us. That's not even, um, Where, you know, they, they spread these images of African countries being poverty and famine-stricken. But actually, Bikini Faso is out here self-sufficient. In less than four years, they gained independence and Sankara's like, okay, this is this is what needs to be done. And it's like good on him. Do you know what I mean? The first yeah. supermarket, all of this stuff. And you don't, I just don't think in people's like expectations yeah. of Africa as a continent being like, they've got this, that and the other. But they're not gonna ha- they're not gonna broadcast that though, are they? Yeah. That we're just as advanced. Yeah. Like but Yeah. You know. In terms of environmental practices, as Sankara came to power in the 80s, Burkina Faso was recovering from a deadly drought. He launched a campaign against desertification, where fellow citizens planted millions of trees. So desertification is when a fertile land becomes desert, typically as a result of drought, deforestation or inappropriate agriculture. So the initiative One Village, One Tree encouraged young people to plant a grove in their villages as a way of demonstrating their will to stop desertification. As a result, there was an increase in environmental awareness. Honestly, the only thing he's missing is recycling. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. all that, that's all that's left. That's all that's he's left. He's you know, he's got people planting trees, he's got, you know... He's already protecting... aware of, you know, environmental practices and just sustainability. Way ahead of his time, and here we are like, okay we need to get kicking on this whole recycling. Yeah, where's the recycling bin? We need to be planting trees because, you know, we don't know how long we've got this planet left for. But this guy is, was already on it. Was already on it. Uh, He also asked Kinebe's why they were wearing Western clothes from Levi, for example, and enforced a rule where every public servant had to wear clothing produced locally. The entire process, cotton, dyeing, weaving and sewing, had to be done locally. And after this rule was introduced, public servants would go to work in Western clothes and carry their local clothes in a bag. Sankro would often make unexpected visits to their workplaces. When they heard he was coming, they would rush to change their clothes. And Sankro himself always wore clothing made locally. So, already thinking about fast fashion there. He's literally delving into, like, every single industry. Fashion, I'm in there. Environment, sorted, completed it. Food, like, <laughs> done that, mate. He's just done, done it, just ticking it off, honestly. Like, he's not depending on anyone at all. No, not depending on cheap labour from, you know, Bangladesh, Vietnam, wherever the clothes label comes from. Yeah. Um, He's actually thinking about um, generating a a local economy and minimising that sort of, you know, I'm going to just wear this and then throw it away two weeks later. But just a bit as much as I'm, you know, enjoying it and having fast fashion, he's, like, got it all on lockdown. But is this a sense, like, a way of controlling his community 
because I'm thinking, okay, yes, they are wearing, you know, your Levi's or whatever, mm. but is that more of an aspirational, you know, I've, I can afford to buy this, why can't I? I want to own and know, like, you know, what I'm wearing. I don't know, yeah. just, just a little bit. Because I you know. do still want the ability to choose. You can't yeah. be forced to do these things. Um, but it was a good idea that he had um, to bring clothing locally. Imagine meeting Sankara in Love is Blind. Oh, that'd be so Honestly, <laughs> just mentions the word fast fashion. <laughs> I'm here for sustainable clothing. And you're just like, oh, yes. okay. I, I don't know what you look like, but I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm definitely. Here. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to get married <laughs> right now. Oh, my gosh. From a foreign policy perspective, how does Sankara relate to the outside world? Sankara's unique and innovative revolution earned him respect and a partnership with Ghana's head of state, Jerry Rawlings. In 1983, the Vital Conference was held, and this involved the French president and African presidents from former French colonies. So if you thought that Britain did the madness with colonialism, France is undeniably in the same category. Probably heavyweights, and yeah. France is probably <laughs> holding the belt right now. Holding the belt, to like, yeah, we've got this. It's also a bit strange that they had some kind of like this conference comes across as a reunion honestly the most awkward dinner party i can imagine yeah you're all invited to the bully's house for dinner yeah you know why would you come yeah the the bully's serving you all these canapes and stuff and you're just supposed to smile and give him money just (laughs) (laughs) like you still owe me um do you remember when i stole your lunch money yeah i want it back i want it back Another instance where Sankara embarrassed the French leadership was when he spoke out against the South African leader, Pieter Botha, who, refusing the end of apartheid, but was very much able to visit France as a guest of the government. I've potentially destroyed his name, but, you know, you get the gist. Not a great guy. <laughs> so at this point, neocolonialists are pretty much getting getting quite vexed at this point. Yeah, um, and also imagine all of their like people at the time being like, Burkina Faso, my mate's wearing like Burkina Faso local. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Who is this guy? Who's, yeah. All the revolution, like women and like all the changes he's made from an environmental perspective. There's probably a sense of like jealousy of why can't my president do this? Yeah, why can't yeah. you make this happen? Mm-hmm. And also it kind of shows a bit of naivety on Sankara's part as well because whilst disrespecting the French president would make a good, like, would make a great meme, you know. It oh my probably, gosh, the best of memes. The absolute best meme, but it probably wouldn't be good for your country and stakeholder relationships in the future. Mm. Stakeholder management 101. Honestly, mm. he needed a business book at that time. You need to play the game hard. Just, uh, you know, how to navigate those relations because although, you know, they were independent, lessons learned from, you know, episode one is... You're not really independent. Yeah. You've still got to, you know, you're being invited to these parties because they're trying to keep you, you know, under the thumb. Mm-hmm. So you've got to know how to play the game. Mm-hmm. The Organisation of African Unity um, is also an intergovernmental organisation. And Sankara gave an impassioned speech where he spoke out against foreign debt and rising interest rates. He sought support from fellow African leaders to refuse to pay this debt due to moral standards being different between the Western African countries. He encouraged heads of state to use Africa's potential to develop their countries through creation, science, technology, and also a united front against debt. He once again stated that not a single thread of the clothing he was wearing came from the US or Europe. I mean, we get it, hun. But also, like, 
Imagine being your present at the time, like, okay, I am loving what you're doing, Sankara, but at the same time... We can't do this. I'm in so much debt, mate. Yeah, mate, I have no money. I have nothing. Like, how do I start? I can't get my citizens to just build a railway. How did you do that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, I do like the nice Mercedes, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I love my private jet, I can't let go. I love the fact that my freezer is not broken, (laughs) so I can keep my food fresh. I just can't. Like he I was... have more guitars than you. <laughs> and I'm loving it. <laughs> but he, he was taking it to such an extreme mm. that you're kind of thinking, where do you even start? How do you make it happen? Yeah. Like it's it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult. So this is where things start to get a bit sticky and we see the unraveling of the revolution. So at the end of the day, Sankara did liken himself to Che Guevara and his revolution was mostly inspired by Marxist ideologies. So it's no surprise that he had undemocratic practices. Here, we're really looking at the pitfalls of his progressive leadership. So the first being he banned trade unions and political parties. NGOs and unions were harassed and a teacher strike was also put down, resulting in the dismissal of two and a half thousand teachers. As a result, there was a limited number of teachers, so they started a revolutionary teachers programme where you had young graduates with no teaching experience undergoing a 10-day course, and they were then apparently qualified to teach. Mm, So, like, teach first in 10 days. Like, honestly. Pretty intense. (laughs) And it doesn't work. (laughs) And obviously, yeah, had negative results. Yep. So what more can you expect? And the theory really was essentially either support the revolution or you don't. And if you did, you'd have no right to go on strike. Yeah, that's the problem with this revolution is that it was very black and white. And if you were seen to disagree with any sort of aspects, then you were pretty much in trouble. So from a court perspective, extrajudicial executions were arranged. Now, this is the killing of a person by government authorities or individuals without any judicial proceedings or any legal process. There were also popular revolutionary tribunals, which is where defendants were placed on trial for corruption, tax evasion or, quote, counter-revolutionary, which is really subjective activity. (laughs) Uh, Defence for these individuals did not conform to international standards. So here we're used to a court of law where you're innocent until proven guilty, but actually here they were proven guilty and they had to prove innocence, which is way harder. And not only did they have to do this, but they had to self-represent because defendants were not allowed lawyers. And admittedly, some people ended up using these tribunals as an opportunity to settle personal scores. So accusations like not working hard enough or, you know, inefficient (laughs) could lead someone to these courts. I've got a couple of names on inefficient already. Oh, yeah. To be fair, someone could put that down on me as well. So let's not. (laughs) That's the problem. It's like Death Note, but prison. So it's it's not really ideal here. They also had the Revolutionary Defence Committee, which was another programme set up where comrades were given military training. Some argued that the RDCs overdid it and used excess force, whilst others viewed this as a sign of the revolution going adrift. He's, he's, he's lost Kind it. of lost the plot slightly here. Yeah. Um, we're doing so well, so well in just that little bit and all, too much. Yeah, too that's much. the thing, because if someone then takes away the right to strike, I think that's... You know, it should be a human right to... If, if you're not happy with your working conditions, you should be able to complain. Yeah, at least. Yeah, and here, by just, you know, getting rid of all the teachers, just sacking them like that, 
and then given you know these replacements who are just fresh out of uni with no experience 10 days suddenly teaching responsible for teaching the rest of the nation it's you know maybe you just had a look around at all some of the dictators surrounding them just been like you know what fancy a bit of that i want a bit of power do you know what i mean like mm. you know i'm i'm out here being one of the people i don't have a freezer that's functional yeah i've done this for for long enough by 1987, Sankara was essentially in political isolation, with limited allies and his enemies being the French political establishment and French puppets in place as West African leaders. In the meantime, Sankara's best friend and second-in-command, Blaise Compare, was becoming impatient and wanted power. The Burkina Babes wanted a more liberal regime and were getting tired. Mate, if I had to build HS2, I'd probably be knackered as well. Oh, I'd be done. I don't blame them, to be honest. I mean, I don't even know when it's going to be ready, but by this point, my, my manicure, like... <laughs> I don't think you're allowed manicures under this regime. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, I'm... <laughs> no luxuries. No luxuries. <laughs> Sankara described his situation at the time as someone riding a bike up an endless hill. A self-made bike, where you have three other ones that you're also riding at the same time on a self-made hill. <laughs> That's the bit that he forgot to add. Yeah, he made this hill. It wasn't by force, hun, but okay, Self-inflicted it. hills, honestly. Captain Cabore, who was within this government, asked for permission to put things to rights by arresting Campore as rumours spread of his plans to get into power. Sankara said, friendship cannot be betrayed. It's pretty naive as he's underestimating his enemies here. I mean, has he not heard of betrayal before? Like, honestly, he not heard of, He's not heard of Judas. <laughs> what? So he knew he was not understood and not liked. It was even said that Sankara, during a discussion on Che Guevara, said, am I going to last until 39 like him? He ended up being murdered before the age of 39. Yikes. So on the 15th of October, 1987, Sankara was shot his body cut into pieces and buried in a shallow grave. It was suspected that Compare ordered Sankara's death to help French and regional dictators. He pretended to grieve Sankara's death but got rid of his supporters in government. Less than three years into rule, Compare took on a massive IMF loan, obviously. Yeah. It's the dumb thing. No, nothing else to do, it's is trendy. there? I just, <laughs> everyone else is doing it. I want to take it's out a loan. It's trendy right now. Yeah. <laughs> He also instituted the Structural Adjustment Programme. Now, this programme is the reason why a lot of um, countries in Africa are currently the way they are. So in order to qualify for a World Bank or an IMF payment, you need to devalue your currency against the dollar. And this makes your currency really weak. The dollar's not that strong, let's be real. Well, I mean, the pound used to... Well, let's yeah, not talk about the pound, the I'm getting triggered. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, once they have to de- they have to devalue their cu- uh, currency against the dollar, so their currency is weak, um, and then this also makes foreign imports more expensive, and this also makes uh, national budget spending have to be cut, um, as in the words of the rules, uh, this has to balance budget. So this now means that there's less money to spend on things like healthcare, education, and you know th- there's no government spending at all for the population. Compore reversed most, if not all, of Sankara's reforms, insisting on using his portrait on public places, which I think like, is just unnecessary. Oh, yeah. yeah, let me just have a picture of my face. Sankara didn't have any public, and maybe that's why things were failing. Oh, I so. think that was the reason why. <laughs> that's the reason why. Yeah. He also ensured he had a jet, because all his mates were having jets too, so he had to have a jet yeah. as well. Um, and all traces of Sankara's presence in power were destroyed as well. So, Compore was head of state for Burkina Faso until 
2014. Honestly, 2014. From 1987, ruling for 27 years after allegedly murdering Sankara. In 2014, his government was overthrown. Guess how? A coup. Love a coup. Oh, love a coup. Love a coup. And the case against Sankara's murder remains stalled. So, yeah, it kind of seems like a lost opportunity here because what if Sankara was able to fully galvanise his country? What if, you know, people felt the knock-on effects, Burkina Faso really thrived as an economy, people were looking to them as an example, would the continent be different? Yeah, and what would, like, the West learn from them as well? There are so many what-ifs in this whole situation. Like, I think all they were needed, like, Sankara took it a little bit too far in certain areas, but Mm. actually he had the bones of like quite strong policies that really made a difference and things that we're trying to do now. Yeah, he was very much ahead of his time and it's a story that's not very much talked about, you know. People don't know that Bikini Faso, this small nation in Western Africa that no one really talks about About, at this mm -hmm. point, had, you know, this, you know, leader that was just so, you know, revolutionary, creative and they were thriving in the 80s where people thought the African countries were essentially places that he went and just died at the age five or something yeah and he was making a difference pretty much thanks for listening guys please subscribe and we'll see you back here in two weeks don't forget to drop us a rating on your podcast platform five stars would be nice would be very nice and we are also on instagram as at it's a content pod feel free to send us your suggestions for future topics In our next episode, we'll be discussing the Congo and the scramble for Africa. See ya. See you later.